0: I want to talk to you this morning about false summits. You know, one of the last things I did as uh, the, the leader of the youth group here in, uh, at City Church is we carried the youth up to Colorado. And at the end of that week of camp, we went on the mountains. So there are some uh, that were on that hike that we took. We started out... At 8,000 feet, that's where this particular camp was, and so we were already struggling to breathe, you know, and once you get up that high, there's not a lot of oxygen. So we waited until we had an opportunity to acclimate to the lack of oxygen, but then that last day, they lead you another 2,000 feet up to the, the mountain peak that's there, but here's the thing. I don't know if you've ever been on a hike like that, but you, you feel like you prepare yourself even beginning at breakfast, right? Because you know you got a day ahead of you that you're going to have to push yourself hard. And so you hang on to your energy. You're not shooting hoops, you know, uh, before you go hiking. You're not chasing each other around because you know that every ounce of strength you have is going to be needed to get up the mountain. Now, here's the thing that makes it even more difficult. Because of the steepness of the mountainside, you are not able to look up and see the mountain peak. It kind of fools you. It has what they warned us. They said this mountain has two false summits. In other words, you're going to think that you're climbing to the peak only to find out when you get there that you're not there yet. And then you're going to think you see the mountain peak again. And you're going to take all your energy and all your effort and all the oxygen that you can muster, and you're going to get up to that peak only to realize I'm not there yet. And then you're going to have to push further. And let me tell you something. Psychologically, it messes with you. In your mind, you think you're getting there. You think you've arrived when in reality, you really haven't even started. I can't tell you how exhausting it feels to be proud of yourself you know because the whole way you're walking to that first mountain peak you're thinking I'm nearly there I got this you know I'm gonna have energy and reserve and you get to the top and you realize oh, I'm not even a third of the way there and all of a sudden you begin to think do I have this in me today I'll never forget we got the group up and literally some of them we had to push their little rear ends up the mountain and we got to that second peak and they realized we weren't there yet And the guides turned to us and said, now, you don't all have to go to that final summit. But if you want to, you can. And I'll never forget those that pressed on. We have some pictures of looking out over that huge mountain valley. And it was difficult, but they made it. You know, in Joseph's life, there was a false summit That false summit that we've learned about was when Pharaoh said, I'm going to elevate you to my second in command. That was a false summit. Joseph thought that he had arrived. And we looked at how when his children were born, he named them, basically uh, sending a message, he named them in such a way that it sent and communicated that God has helped me forget my suffering and my family and where I came from. Because he thought he had arrived. He had more responsibility and importance than he ever had. He had another false summit the day that his brothers kneeled before him, those same brothers that sold him into slavery. He thought that that was was as good as it could get. When his father came to Egypt with all of his family and a brother that he had never met, a young brother named Benjamin, but that was a false summit. And as he spoke with Joseph... Uh, Joseph spoke with Jacob, his father. Jacob reminded him of where the summit actually was, and that's what we're going to look at this morning. Joseph is a multi-generational story. And what do I mean by that? Oftentimes, God speaks to us and he uses us, but we think of our story as existing in our lifetime. We think of ourselves as an island. In America, we say that we are self-made, and when we're gone, we're gone and that's all there is to us. But that's really not the pattern that we see in God's word. In all truthfulness, God's story, especially the story of the gospel, spans many generations. God's story of salvation really began with Joseph's great-grandfather, Abraham. Abraham was, uh, and we first read about Abraham in the, early in the book of Genesis. Abraham was a man that God called out and made a special promise. In Genesis 15, the Lord spoke to Abraham in a vision, and he said, Don't be afraid, Abraham. I'm going to protect you, and your reward is going to be great. Abraham turned and said to God, How uh, can I be a great nation and a great people? I have no children. Everything that I own is gonna be passed on to my servants when I die. But God told him, you will have a child. And Abraham, the Bible says in Genesis 15 that he believed God and took him at his word and the Lord counted his faith as righteousness. And then in verse seven of 15, the Lord told him, I'm the Lord who brought you out of Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land as your possession. He looked out over this land that he was living in. But Abraham replied, oh, sovereign Lord, how can I be sure that I will actually possess it? And God entered into a covenant with Abraham. He caused Abraham. uh, He led him. And it's a beautiful picture. This morning in the time that we have, we really don't have an opportunity to look at it. We've talked about this before, but God has him bring a heifer. Uh, a three-year-old female goat, a three-year-old ram, a turtle dove, and a young pigeon. And Abraham d- divides those animals and he falls into a sleep and a deep darkness falls upon him. The Lord says to Abraham, as this terrifying darkness is the way the scripture speaks about it. This is Abraham. You can be sure God says to him that your descendants will be strangers in a foreign land where they will be oppressed as slaves for 400 years. But I will punish the nation that enslaves them, and in the end they will come away with great wealth. And as for you, Abraham, you will die in peace and be buried at a ripe old age. And after four generations, your descendants will return here to this land. Then it says after the sun went down in verse 17 and darkness fell, Abraham saw a smoking fire pot and a flaming torch pass between the halves of the carcasses. So it says that the Lord made a covenant with Abraham that day. The smoking pot and the flaming torch represented the presence of God And in a ceremony that was very relevant to the culture that Abraham lived in, God was saying to Abraham, if I do not keep my promise to you, may I be like the carcasses of these animals that have been slain. But it's interesting that as God made this promise to Abraham, he didn't speak of total wealth without suffering. He didn't speak of a life without hardship. I don't know how many of you would love for God to come and say, you know, I'm going to have a conversation with you about your future. And he pulls you aside and he says, you know, you're going to suffer. That those that come after you, your descendants that you invest your life in, they're going to have a really, really hard time. And not for a couple of years, not just for a little season in their own lifetime, but for four centuries, 400 years. Abraham had a son named Isaac. Isaac had two sons, Jacob and Esau. And I know some of you kids, you've got some wonderful teachers. And I know uh, that in after school programs and in your Sunday school classes, you've learned about these two young men and how Jacob tricked Esau out of his birthright, and uh, and how Esau uh, regretted it. He gave his birthright actually uh, to Jacob for a pot of stew, but Jacob stole his blessing. And Jacob began to live on his own away from his family and God began to work in Jacob's life. We read about Jacob remembering this promise of Abraham and God beginning to come to Abraham's grandson Jacob. Now Jacob was Joseph's father if you'll remember and Jacob had a period in his life that God really got his attention. There's one particular instance in Genesis 35 when Jacob is finds that his life is threatened because of something that took place with his family and took place in the foreign land that he was living in and God told him I want you to leave and go to a place called Bethel but he said Jacob before you do you've got some pagan idols in your life I've pulled you, uh, your grandfather Abraham, out from among these pagan people. I pulled your father Isaac out from underneath this pagan teaching and these pagan beliefs to be a special God to you. And he says, Jacob, it's time that you bury those foreign gods, that you put them out of your house And so at a place called Shechem, under a huge tree that everyone could recognize as being special, God led Jacob to bury all of the foreign idols that his wives had brought into their relationship, that he had allowed his children to have. And he buries everything there and and makes a personal commitment, as his family does, to follow the one true God. So this place Shechem is a special sacred place that God brought Jacob and his family to to establish in Jacob's life not just because his, his granddaddy Abraham or his father Isaac but for his own self God brought Jacob to a point where Jacob decided I will follow the Lord. I don't know if you've come to that place in your life that you've decided for yourself that I'm going to follow the Lord. That whatever God has for me, he can have all of me. Whatever the Lord, uh, whatever purpose he created me for, I want him to realize that purpose in my life. But Jacob came to that place in Shechem. Later on in the life of Joseph, we've talked a couple of weeks ago about Joseph's two boys, Manasseh and Ephraim. If you'll remember, Ephraim was younger. And Manasseh was older. And according to their culture, as Jacob passed away, he brought Joseph's sons to him. And he brought his own sons to his side. And he was going to pass on the father's blessing to his children. But Jacob does something a little bit unusual. And this is something that just to me sounds a little strange that Joseph let him do this. But he told Joseph, he said, Joseph, I'm going to take your two boys as my own sons. They're mine now. Can you imagine as a grandparent, you sit down and you're at Thanksgiving dinner and your mom turns to you. And my mother loves my kiddos. But it would be a little strange if she said, I want you to go home and uh, get your kids stuff because they're mine now. But as Jacob blessed his children, he included Ephraim and Manasseh as his own. But he did one thing more. As he put his hands upon the sons of Joseph, Manasseh and Ephraim, he put his right hand on Ephraim, the younger one, to give him the greater blessing, which was culturally completely backwards. Joseph stops him and says, what are you doing, dad? You've got your hand, the right hand on the wrong kid. Maybe you can't see straight. You know, I'm going to help you out. And Jacob said, no, the older will serve the younger. Joseph, it says in Genesis 48, verse 17, that Joseph was upset when he saw that his father placed his right hand on Ephraim's head and he lifted it to move it from Ephraim's head to Manasseh's. But his father replied, I know, my son, I know. Manasseh will also become a great people, but his younger brother will become even greater and his descendants will become a multitude of nations. Then it says in verse 21, Jacob said to Joseph, Joseph, I'm about to die, but God be with you and will take you back to Canaan, the land of your ancestors. Do you remember what God told Abraham? That your people will be carried away and persecuted, but after the fourth generation, your four generations of sons will be carried back. Well, who's the fourth generation from Abraham? Who's his great-grandson? Joseph. So Jacob reminds Joseph, But God will be with you and will take you back to Canaan, the land of your ancestors. And beyond what I have given your brothers, I'm giving you an extra portion of the land that I took from the Amorites with my sword and with my bow. And then it says, when the period of mourning was over, Joseph approached Pharaoh's advisors. He said, I want to bury my father. Pharaoh gave him permission. And Joseph took a huge entourage of all the leaders and all of the, the wise men of Egypt, all of his family, all of his brothers, and they traveled back, guess where? To Shechem. And there in Shechem, he buries Jacob. And then Joseph does something that I've got to be honest with you, kind of shocks me, because if I'm Joseph and I've got all the power, Pharaoh's given me permission to go home. I'm not an Egyptian. I'm a Canaanite, right? Or or I'm a I'm a, a, a child of Israel, and I'm from this area of Canaan. I would stay there, right? I would, you know, you have your brothers. They're go get their children, get their things, and come to Egypt and establish, but but Joseph doesn't do this. There's something in Joseph that I think he realized this was a false summit, that God was not through with him. I believe this because I believe he was aware that what God gave his great-grandfather, Abraham, the prophecy, the promise that his people would be persecuted in a foreign land for 400 years, that Joseph realized that he was to be a part of that. I don't know if you, if you're influenced by your great grandfather. I I got to be honest. I never knew my great grandparents. I heard a lot about them. I saw pictures of them. But here's the thing that's interesting. Even not knowing who they were on my father's side, I knew my great grandparents. Uh, one set of them on my mother's side, and they were beautiful people. But they had a tremendous influence on me, just by the nature of the fact that they had an influence on my. Parents. so I know that Abraham had an influence on the life of Joseph and Joseph does something so unexplainable he goes back to Egypt Now we've looked at Joseph's life and this morning Heather read for us how Joseph's brothers thought that because his father was dead that he would finally exact revenge on them they begged for mercy and Joseph shows them mercy and we ask What's going on with Joseph? I'll tell you, I think Joseph learned something about the character of God that we forget. Joseph forgave because he knew that God was a forgiving God. Joseph embraced suffering because he knew that God would use that suffering to bless him. In fact, he even tells his brothers that the things that you meant to uh, harm me God intended it for all good and listen to the insight that Joseph has about his life and his purpose he said God brought me to this position so I could save the lives of many people I believe Joseph was aware that God was going to move on the earth that he has spoken to his father Abraham his grandfather Isaac and his father Jacob and that God had let them know and opened up a window into time so they could see that God was going to use them as a family to bring the Messiah into the world, to reconcile man to God once again, to to deal with the sin problem. But before that could happen, he knew that God would have to develop in the mind of a people that God is a God that saves. There's an inscription on an Egyptian wall that I saw. The other day, and they've uncovered it. And there's an Egyptian man, and he's holding out this wooden arm. And we've talked about this earlier how in order for the Egyptians to approach their gods, they had a wooden arm with a handle on the end, and they were afraid of the gods that they worshipped. And so they would hold out the offerings to their gods on the end of a fake arm. And that's where we get the, the, the saying, at, at holding someone at arm's length. You're afraid to get close, so you hold out something at an arm's length. You don't want to touch your god. You know, it's amazing to me when God revealed himself to Moses again after the people and descendants of Joseph had been enslaved for 400 years as God told Abraham they would be, he introduced himself in a way that was very intimate. He gave them a name to use for him that referred to him as a God of covenant, a God of promise, not a God, just Elohim out in the ether, out in the universe, untouchable, unknowable, but a God that was their God as a people, a God that would love them and enter into a covenant with them. And Joseph knows that the final summit has not been reached. And so he tells his family in Genesis 50, at the end of the book of Genesis, we read about Joseph at the end of his life. In verse 24, he says, Soon I will die, but God will surely come to help you and lead you out of this land. He will bring you back to the land he solemnly promised to give to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. Then Joseph made the sons of Israel swear an oath, and he said, when God comes to help you and lead you back, you must take my bones with you. And then it says that Joseph died at the age of 110 years old. They took his body and they embalmed it, and they put it inside of a box, that basically was never buried. The Bible says a Pharaoh came that didn't know Joseph and didn't appreciate his contribution. At the same time, the Egyptian people began to see how many uh, children of Israel there were and how they began to multiply and how they became a threat to the Egyptian way of life. And so they said, we need to make slaves out of these people. For four centuries... They were oppressed and mistreated. There was even a time when Pharaoh wanted to keep their numbers from increasing, so he gave orders that every Hebrew baby that was born was to, uh, every male Hebrew baby was to be murdered as soon as it was born. You know the story of Moses and how God used Moses to deliver his people, but Moses had somebody that helped him. And I know that you might not know a lot about this. Assistant: that he had called Joshua. But let me tell you something cool about Joshua. Do you remember the son that Joseph had that Jacob put his right hand upon and gave him the blessing that he would be a mighty leader in his people? Do you remember the name of that son? It wasn't Manasseh, it was Ephraim. The thing that's interesting about this individual Joshua was that he was a descendant of Ephraim. He was of the tribe of Ephraim. He was Joseph's descendant, but he was separated by many generations. But he knew who he belonged to. And God used this man Joshua to follow Moses, to help Moses, and to literally watch how Moses prayed, how Moses led the people, and eventually how Moses brought them back to the promised land. Here's what's a beautiful thing that we see In Joshua chapter 24, Joshua is at the end of his life and he is being buried, guess where? In Shechem. And he lived to be the same age as Joseph. And the Bible says that he kept Joshua, the son of Ephraim, was the one who kept the promise and he buried Joseph's bones there in Shechem along with his. Joshua has a beautiful name. It means the Lord will save. Moses gave him that name because he knew the importance that he would carry in his people. Why am I sharing all this with you? Why am I bringing all this weird history up? Why am I talking about grandfathers and great grandfathers and sons? Here's, here's why I'm bringing all this up, kids because God is a multi generational God, and your life is worth more than your lifespan. God has more for you than just the air that you breathe while you're here on this earth. Listen, you're going to be young for about 10, 20 years. And then, you know, life starts to happen. Before you know it, you're going to have responsibilities. And like kids and jobs and work and things like that, and you're going to enjoy those things, and God's going to use those things to bless you. But listen, one day you're going to get so old that your body's going to be worn out. Hopefully you'll all live to be 103, and you're going to find yourself contemplating life after death. And I want you to remember what I'm telling you now when that time comes, that your life is lived far beyond the span of your life, that God is an eternal God that the decisions that you make now affect all of eternity. The purposes and calling for your life go on long before, and your life can be lived as a testimony of God's salvation long after you graduate from high school. Long after you are so old that nobody (laughs) listens to what you have to say. You know what I mean? And only your buddies at the donut shop will get together with you and solve the world's problems with you. I mean, there's going to come a day and you're going to think, God is done with me and know that's when God's beginning with you. Joseph knew something about the character of God. He knew that God would see him through and that God would see his people through because God had been there to deliver him. He knew what suffering was like and he knew his people would have to suffer in order to know the salvation of God because he had suffered and he had known the salvation of God. He knew that God, there was something in God that desires to save his people and to not be held at arm's length because he had experienced the salvation of God. And he knew that his people, in order to be the people of God, would have to have faith because he had to have faith in God. And listen the pinnacle, the summit, that Joseph reached in his life as we contemplate his life story and his testimony was far beyond the time that he lived on this earth. He went back to Egypt knowing what would happen to his people, but he told his people, my life story will be over when my bones are carried back according to the promises that God gave my great-grandfather Abraham when they're buried in the place that God met my father Jacob. Consequently, that place where Joseph was buried became the first place of worship when God's people entered into the promised land it's where they put up the tabernacle and until Solomon built the temple that's where they went to worship it became a sacred place because that's where God met them so what does this mean to us how do we take this testimony of Joseph and live this out in our life here's the encouragement that I have for you you need to live beyond your lifespan You need to live in such a way that those that come after you and that are your children and your grandchildren will learn from the life that you live. You are not just this vapor speck of dust that comes and goes and leaves no trace. God put eternity in our hearts and we have a part of God's plan to live out and the choices that you make are going to set a pattern for others to follow for generations. Scripture speaks of this. God, listen, is an eternal God. And what God's wanting to do in our lives spans more than just one lifespan. He's wanting to do something through us as a people, not just one person. I love what Job 36 says. Look, God is greater than we can understand. His years cannot be counted. Listen to what the prophet Isaiah says about God in Isaiah 40. Have you never heard... Have you never understood the Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of all the earth? He never grows weak or weary. No one can measure the depths of his understanding. I love what the psalmist says in Psalm 90. It says, Lord, through all the generations, you have been our home. Before the mountains were born, before you gave birth to the earth and the world, from beginning to end, you are God. You turn people back to dust saying, return to dust, you mortals. For you, God, a thousand years are as a passing day, as brief as a few night hours. You sweep people away like dreams that disappear. We are like grass that springs up in the morning. In the morning it blooms and flourishes, but by evening it is dry and withered. The author of Hebrews, the great preacher says, in the beginning, Lord, you laid the foundations of the earth and made the heavens with your hands. They will perish, but you remain forever. They will wear out like old clothing. You will fold them up like a cloak and discard them like old clothing. But you are always the same. God, you will live forever forever God is an eternal God listen it had been 690 some odd years from the day that God made that promise to Abraham until Joseph's bones were finally laid to rest in Shechem where God promised him they would return but God kept his promises and as we have scriptures hall of fame of those who had faith in God it says every single one of them had their promises Made to them by God, their promises were not kept in their lifetime, but later in further generations. We've got to get this idea, wrapped, our minds wrapped around this notion that God is a multi-generational God, that his blessings go beyond our generation. Our lifespan is but a brick in what God is building for our city, for our homes, and for our families. Listen, young men, I want you to look up at me. I need to see your eyes. I want you to understand something. You have a legacy to build and to leave here on this earth. Jesus said we're all building a house and you need to know as you grow and as you serve God where all your children are and they need to be under your roof and you need to be madly in love with their mother. Why? Because you have a legacy to build. It matters how the children grow up in your home. You have a sacred responsibility before God to show them and teach them and lead them and how to serve God, not just for the few years that you're living here, but for all of eternity. Whether God leaves you here in Amarillo, whether you live in another country, whether you have a lot of money or you have very little, you have a responsibility to those that will be living where you're living now, generations from now. And I want to ask you, is your life an eternal story? What would your bones say? 300 years from now, if someone were to pass by where you once lived, where you once hung out with your friends, where you made your mark on the world, what will they know? Will you tell them about the love of God? Will you tell, would your life be a story, a testimony of God's salvation, of God's ability to redeem and restore and radically change a human heart? Or will you be forgotten? Live beyond your lifespan. The second thing is you need to let God do what you can't. Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph, They did more than just have faith in one God. They had faith that that God would save them and that they had faith in in God. Listen to what Hebrews says, and we're, we're nearly done. He says, so God's rest is there for people to enter, but those who first heard this gospel news failed to enter because they disobeyed God. So God set another time for entering his rest, and that time is today. God announced this through David much later in the words already quoted. Today, when you hear his voice, don't harden your hearts. And then he says in verse 8, Now, if Joshua had succeeded in giving them this rest, God would have still spoken about another day of rest to come. So there is a special rest still waiting for For the people of God. Did you hear what the author of Hebrews said? There is a special rest still waiting for the people of God. And then in verse 12, just one verse, he says, For the word of God is alive and powerful. It is sharper than the sharpest two-edged sword, cutting between soul and spirit, between joint and marrow. It exposes our innermost thoughts and desires. Nothing in all creation is hidden from God. Everything is naked and exposed before his eyes, and he is the one that we are accountable to. And then he begins to talk about Jesus, our great high priest. Finally, I want to encourage you to understand that the last chapter of your life has not been written yet. That's what the author of Hebrews tells us, that there is a life and an eternity waiting for all of us. You know, in all truthfulness, the last chapter in Joseph's life has not been written yet because one day Jesus Christ is going to come again and we are all going to celebrate the resurrection of Jesus Christ and what that means for us in a very personal way. You know, earlier I read to you from the book of Joshua where Joshua was buried and where he buried the bones of Joseph in Shechem. But before he died, his last words were this. He said, if you have a problem serving God, then choose this day whom you will serve. But Joshua said, as for me and the house of Ephraim, we will serve the Lord. I want to ask you what kind of decision that you're prepared to make with your lifespan, with your eternity. What will be left? What mark will you leave? Will you make a stand like Joshua, who literally with his last breath tells the world around him, even though I'm not going to be here to see how my children and grandchildren live, I've left an example for them to follow. They've made a commitment to me. My family will serve the Lord. Would you be willing, if you're here and you know the Lord, and I want to speak to those of you that know the Lord? to make a special commitment this morning that I am going to lead my family to Jesus. If you're a young man in this room right now, would you make a commitment right here, right now, today, I'm going to be a godly husband and father. If you're going to make that commitment that I'm going to leave a life that others can follow and a testimony of God's salvation if you're here and you don't know the lord and you'd say donnie i've never known the lord in that way i've never known his forgiveness i've never really know known what it's like to believe him for anything today could be a spiritual birthday for you but i want to ask you what story will your life tell